My name is Adam Myros. I am not Steve Cuff. He will not be joining us this evening. Instead, I am joined by a man who constantly complains to me that he doesn't receive mail on Martin Luther King Day, Sean Glennis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yep. What, what can I say? I also, um, <laughs> I wouldn't know. Uh, because I don't get to check my mailbox until the following Tuesday anyway. So, All right. Uh, who else is here? We have uh, – let's stick with the drunks for now. We have uh, Jack Eason. What <laughs> city are you even joining us from, Jack? Is this Louisville I'm still? Still in Louisville. Okay. Uh, maybe next time somewhere else. We'll, we will see. Is, um, the, so, yeah, you, you were talking about moving uh, cities. And uh, are you excited to, to move to a city that can't all be said in one syllable? That can't. Well, well, it's it's difficult to say Louisville in just one syllable. You've got to do that stroke trailing off thing, which is you know <laughs> appropriately southern, just kind of lull. Okay, okay, that's all fascinating stuff. Uh, moving on, <laughs> you wanted uh, to go to the drunks. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna head over to the teetotally section here with uh, Jake Tropila, everyone's favorite Californian. Hey, hello, hi. How's it going? How did you? There are a lot of Californians, Adam. I don't know about that. Yeah, we're the oh, most Have you met state. the guy? Jake is he's a personable chap. Oh, thanks, Adam. Uh, I'll tell you that you murdered Steve. <laughs> and uh, we have a new contributor, guys. He checks all the boxes. Uh, he's a white male in uh, the Midwest. <laughs> uh, so joining us for the very first time, we have Eric Bailey. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Yeah, for this for this podcast um, about uh, racism in horror movies, we thought we'd get a specialist. Yes, <laughs> I want you all to know I'm not drinking alcohol tonight. I'm drinking white tea. Oh. <laughs> so be prepared for a very soothing and dull podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm also I'm also drinking Lacroix, so I'm on brand for this. <laughs> yeah. So what are we talking about now? Something about racist horror movies. Uh, well, there's this new film out called Get Out that is just sort of doing gangbusters everywhere. Maybe you've heard of it, Adam. I see it's made quite a bit of money, like 20 times its budget. Yeah, at least. Yeah. Still climbing. Uh, yeah, this is a film directed by one half of the noted comedy team Key and Peel. Uh, and it's uh, something I don't think a lot of people knew what to expect from. I, I'm kind of surprised it's done as well as it has, just because seeing the trailer, I was curious, but I I wasn't sure what it was going to be, what to make of it. And uh, yeah. I guess one of those times where a critical consensus got my butt in the seat, and I was certainly happy that I saw it. Yeah, um, I, it's interesting, too, to think about like sort of what we thought about this movie before we went into it, because I was like, I kind of knew <clears throat> through other sort of like non-film podcast like interviews with Jordan Peele that he was like working on horror stuff for a while um working on like this project presumably and it turns out he has a lot of other stuff um unproduced as well but sort of like just working on a suite of 
of uh, horror things and that uh, he was a big fan of the genre. Um, and maybe it's just like my own personal bias, but usually what I think of uh, as far as like products that come out of that is usually, you know, just a lot of genre service. Um, and, you know, Jordan Peele hadn't really like, well, this is silly. This is a silly thought that I had seeing this for the first time is like being like, oh, he hadn't really proved himself as a director, but that's totally untrue because uh, a lot of the stuff in Key and Peele is is really visually um, appealing and, and just like a lot, very flamboyant sometimes. Mm-hmm. So uh, Get Out. It's a movie about, uh, you know, uh, an African-American young gentleman who goes to visit his girlfriend's parents in suburbia, uh, some sort of uh, very upscale white, uh, presumably New England residence, and uh, things go predictably awry in the in the genre we're dealing with. Um, have we all seen this? I think we did, yeah? I've seen it twice. Same. Oh. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Big spenders. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... What do we think? What did this movie deliver on its ninety nine percent Rotten Tomato score? There, well, it's worth it's worth noting. It's a ninety nine percent because Armand White doesn't like this movie, <laughs> <laughs> which is like clockwork, completely predictable that he would have to dislike this movie. So really, it's a hundred percent an Armand White. <laughs> <laughs> so, what made this movie so universally appealing? Well, I think I think what's good about this film is it's a very clever insertion of kind of social comment into a genre vehicle. It's and it's something that I quite like about what Jordan Peele has done with this is that yes, this film has a subtext, has a racial comment, uh, but it's also a very very appealing and very involving genre vehicle. He maintains pace and structure just like a good trim lean vehicle it doesn't meander off into didactics or anything like that um obviously the 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 target of the film i guess if we if we want to clarify is really not so much overt racism it's more a kind of the the liberal white racism that kind of (laughs) gentle needling of, of people who would not consider themselves to be racist but maintain still maintain a a vision of an otherness to black African-Americans. Um, and that's really what the film is, is needling at. It's these kind of awkward interactions from open, quote unquote, open-minded white people. Uh, these are what people term like microaggressions. I see as the term that's being bandied around a lot on the internet described just these little uh, fractious conversation snippets that just hit kind of uh, did, hit the ear difficultly. You did know? you, did you find out about microaggressions on uh, last man standing starring Tim Allen? <laughs> I did not find anything out from Tim Allen ever. Oh uh, well, apparently they're fake. He he myth busted that. Oh good, that's great. How about Coke being a hell of a drug? Have you ever myth busted that? Uh, what I what I like, um, I mean, I like a whole lot about this movie, and and uh, one of the things, yeah, that Jake t- or Jack touched on was uh, that it does uh, target like this liberal white. Um, uh, psychographic, I guess. And, um, instead of just doing like this sort of easy target that everybody, like not everybody, but sort of everybody on this side of the tracks could just be like, Oh yeah, that like everybody could agree on that. And this is, this is a lot more clever where it's like a lot of the people who really love this movie don't, don't know, or, or are sort of like willfully ignorant that they are the bad guy of this movie. 
Um, but I, I think uh, as someone who's seen it a couple times, there's it. It just the genre textures just do a lot to reward those second viewings. Um, like, like for instance, uh, Stephen Root's character plays this blind guy, and um, it, that's played as like this sort of metaphoric like color blindness. Um, yeah, yeah it, it's just a lot of a lot of little things like that that that. Um, He's using these genres to help build on um, what he's subverting and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I think it was yeah. uh, Richard Brody. I, I read his review in The New Yorker, and I thought he had something really um, insightful to say about it with, where um, you, know, you get sort of the more conservative, sort of more traditional view of like what we consider racism with um, the cop who stops them at the beginning. And mm-hmm. I think Brody says, you know, conservatives see um, differences between the races, races, but it's the wrong differences, whereas like liberals don't see any difference. And that in its way is just as bad because it it flattens out um, sort of racial mm-hmm. experience. And it's sort of um, it 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 sort of. Um, it, it sort of nullifies racial experience, it's sort of like unblack unblackifies mm-hmm. everybody you know like um and sort of negates their experience the sort of um oppressive experience that they've had in like just being african american and so i like i thought that was that was definitely i think the bigger point of the film not just to like point out racism and like all these slavery parallels but also to sort of um give white liberals as as sort of like put them just as much in the sights of the film as mm-hmm. the more traditional yeah. view of racism. There's, I mean, we've seen circulating on like the internet constantly circulated things for for a long time. We're seeing these supposed statements from Bill Cosby of all people, who his fall, <laughs> his momentous fall from grace. But Bill Cosby uh, was the the mouthpiece for many basically racist people as the guy who is basically saying that there is no like systemic problem against African-Americans if they would just behave more like well-ordered members of society. And what that was coded language for was behave more like white people. Um, that's kind of where, where this film cuts in is the idea that they, the, these people don't want him to behave like a white person. They don't want black people to behave like white people. Um, but they've fetishized it in a different way. And this is, it's kind of this still a division between the two is these people who would consider themselves to be colorblind, which, and I don't know about other people's experiences, but I've met many people who have said they don't see color and every single one of them is definitely kind of racist. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the beginning, (laughs) I I really like the beginning uh, conversation, uh, like as he's packing for the weekend and, um, and he, he asks her like, Hey, did you tell him that I'm black? And, um, and she finds that as like this white liberal person finds that to be like this sort of ridiculous question. Um, it's like, Hey, no, my parents aren't racist, but yeah, it's that thing. Like you said, Eric, uh, that Richard Brody talked about like nullifying experiences. Like, no, no, I want them to know because it's important. Like it's important like it's not all about proving that you don't see race, you know, it's not all about like you proving that you're not racist. And I feel like that is like, that is something that a lot of uh, white liberal 
people like myself in- included is like you sort of internalize this thing where you like want to prove that you're not racist mm-hmm. and and it's 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 really silly and this movie does a good job of, of putting that like projecting that it kind of just makes things worse as it were <laughs> right yeah there's like a fine line between empathy and just arrogance thinking you know well, yeah, other people and what they've experienced is is a folly yeah i think there, there's a difficulty in, in understanding there's certain conversations you don't get to be part of and right. i think i'm thinking recently of say amy schumer got in trouble recently for her reconstruction of that beyonce video which was the dumbest thing but <laughs> She, her her claim was that it was like it was a fan video. It was you know she was recreating it not to make light of the film and was formation was a video I believe for, you know which is a strong kind of charge of African American experience to mm-hmm. it. Um, and Schumer's claim was that she wasn't belittling it or anything. She just wanted to do an homage in a kind of a silly way. But the feeling for me was that this is not a, like she injected herself into a conversation that she really doesn't have any part in. And that's, I guess, part of this idea is that for certain these people who try to prove that they're not racist by, you know, very much actively becoming part of the conversation. At a certain point, it's you start wondering why they're in there at all, you know, what they have vested in there. And it becomes, it's actually about them. It's not about the other race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Peel here does a really good job of um, subverting, I guess, racial expectations because um you would think you think you think first that the family uh is going to be out to get the boyfriend because he's black and i don't want to really get too heavy into spoilers here if nobody has seen the movie yet but we kind of find out the reason why they're targeting chris and um is because uh, i'd say spoil away jake yeah Yeah, it would be difficult to talk without if you're not one of the hundred million dollars worth of people that's seen this yet i don't know what to say (laughs) Um, but how they're targeting him because they think black people are ultimately the superior race and, and form of a physical condition and really speaks to the like the misguided white elitist liberal class that um, his girlfriend's family leads in the secret cult that they have. Um, it's even it's yeah. even worse almost that that one person. It's not even so much they believe that African Americans are superior race. It's that they're in vogue right now. <laughs> oh, that too. Black is in season. I think the guy, one yeah. of the people at the party, says, "Yeah, black is the new black." <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and Peel does a remarkable job. Uh, going back to what Adam was asking about, does this deserve the ninety-nine percent? I mean, I wouldn't give it a ninety-nine out of a hundred, but it's a uh, it's an excellent film in that he, for a guy who's known only for his comedy, how he definitely blends not just comedy, but social satire and even horror. There's some really effective horror sequences like the opening scene or the the escape at the end and how it all just gels together so convincingly is a, is a testament to Peel's skill as a director. And yeah. Yes. I don't, even the, the casting is like clever too, like um, oh, casting God, Allison, God. Allison Williams, who, you know, not only like, is she this, this character, like that casting in itself is sort of a, a poke at that show uh, girls, but um, also, like, and she's talked about this on the press tour, like, her life is, like, been the, the most, like, privileged thing, uh, just, like, growing up into, like, wealth and fame and him sort of, like, using that. But, um, I mean, it's a great visual casting as well when she, in the in the final moments where they, like, in the last scenes where she finally pulls her hair back and she becomes almost this kind of angular white supremacist figure it's a very weird transformation it's very simply arrived at but she i don't know like she's much more accommodating and aloof throughout the earlier parts of the film and then when she kind of settles back into her actual 
kind of form. It's it's uh, this very interesting transformation. I don't know. It's it's kind of she becomes mm-hmm. very threatening without really any overt kind of mm-hmm. change in her her person. Right. And J- Jake, you talked about sort of like how he was known for his comedy appeal. Uh, um, and the first time I watched this, especially like I found myself just like sort of uh, sort of bubbling, like with like excitement and like there was it felt really funny. Um, and there was just a lot of that was contingent on just sort of this impending, uh, not only an awkward situation, but uh, impending horror or whatever was like bubbling um, at the surface you know, like they arrive at this house and he pulls back in this, this very like, um, ominous, uh, way. And, the the, um, the servant or the, the, the groundskeeper groundskeeper comes into view and then you just see all these things. And it's very, just, it's, it's a fun watch. And then, um, and and the second time I watched it, I was like, Oh, I like, I remembered more like one liners or at least what I thought were one liners, but it was just like a general atmosphere, that was like exciting and kind of funny that uh, is, is rare to see. I mean, let's, yeah. let's talk about a success in terms of comedy in that uh, Jordan Peele makes the TSA a likable entity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, the hardest thing for a new director, I'd say especially something you see a lot in horror films is you, you can have great ideas, but the hardest thing to establish is, is atmosphere. And this kept you it was very unsettling to watch your first time through mm-hmm. yeah like the one p- particular sequence that stands out to me is when they're having that auction party and chris walks in the house and he goes oh, upstairs God. And everyone just stops and turns as they after he leaves the frame and that is really just chilling in its simplicity yeah what i appreciate one of the things that i really appreciate about this film and it's something i think a lot of uh, maybe novice directors and kind of can can trip up on is pacing this film mm-hmm. is really tight, tightly compacted. It doesn't, it doesn't get trapped up in a lot of the the issues that a lot of other genre films fall into. Actually, like Sean, you were watching Don't Breathe recently, which I think is a great example of a film that kind of gets bogged down in cat and mouse antics because it thinks those fundamentally are exciting, but they're only Absolutely. exciting if you, they're only exciting if you have the groundwork to make them exciting. If you care about what happens, this film avoids a lot of those kind of extended what what could be considered staples of the genre but you know are easy to get lost in are very easy to get lost in kind of a maze of kind of doing a really good cat and mouse sequence a really good gore sequences this film is violent at points but it's never it never gets goes into like gore set pieces or anything like that it's very trim it maintains its energy when we find out what's happening kind of as a, the final reveal as uh, the the hero of the piece starts escaping, the film actually kind of picks up momentum and kind of thunders through it, never loses momentum. I think that's really something I very much admire about the film is that it never, there's there's really no point in where I'm looking at a scene going, this doesn't need to be here. Why are we here? I was never thinking like this scene should end. You know, it's it really maintains that speed and that's very promising. I think for for you know for a director moving forward, that's a very uh, impressive thing to to nail down so quickly. I mean, this is his feature debut, and that's that's one of the things I was thinking of that that sort of kind of quells some of reservation or not not necessarily reservations, but a lot of times we see directors come out with a movie and it's just sort of like one of these like um, not necessarily blockbusters, but just a huge critical success, and then. Uh, we find out in their second and third movies that they sort of just put all of their ideas into their first movie. Um, and 
I think the fact that he does have those things like uh, seemingly nailed down um, make me less worried about that. I don't know how you guys feel. Well, you wonder if his sketch background kind of helps in in keeping things lean, if you will. You know, it's like you yeah. got to get your point across and keep moving. Yeah, it's it's ironic. I would say even like in the late latter seasons of Key and Peel, some of those sketches have more fat on them in like five minutes than this like ninety minute feature. I don't know how long is it ninety or hundred minutes. It's, it's hundred. It's one forty five. One forty five. So it's. No, not one forty-five. That would be an hour. I mean, it's an hour. It's an hour, hour forty-five. 45. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. It's like, damn, that really flew by. <laughs> suddenly, it's, it's yeah. Suddenly, it's Batman Begins. <laughs> Fast and the Furious Eight. Yeah. The Fate of the Furious. But yeah, I, the get 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 out. I almost said get smart for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> get out works mar- remarkably as both. Uh, this can just be seen as a. a proud pleasing midnight film with just a rowdy oh. audience and but it also can be you can sit down and you know dissect it intellectually and, and discuss the social and racial implications of each scene and i think that's also what makes it really effective yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i feel like that was what i appreciated the most about the film i of course loved the social commentary aspect and the fact that you can just you know discuss this film ad nauseum but like what I loved most about it was the fact that it was, it was such a fun theater experience. Like I went to see it on opening weekend and the theater was packed and everybody was just like reacting. They were laughing, they were screaming, they were jumping. Like it was, it was just, it's, it's something that I actually haven't experienced in a while or at least not to this degree. Um, Yeah. There was like clapping and yeah. 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 Same here. Yeah, for a film that that kind of sounds heavy when you talk about it, it's a great deal of fun. Oh God, the yes. whole way through. And yeah, uh, and I, I think I think it, yeah, it's a confluence of all these things that. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I I hope I'm not sounding like hyperbolic, but like, and I kind of want to hear your guys' reactions or your thoughts. But like, do you think that this will hold up uh, throughout the rest of the year as like one of the best movies of the year? Like, do you think that at the end of the year, obviously this is a hard thing to guess. I mean, unless you're like looking at the slate of prestige stuff to come out, but like, do you think that this will hold up as like one of the most successful films as far as like um, how, like how you took it? Well, it's already better than hidden figures. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, is it I, better than Get Smart? <laughs> yes, much better. I certainly hope it stays in the conversation because most of those like year-end films, they can kind of, like, oftentimes because they get so bogged down in like award season nonsense and everything, the conversation can get kind of flattened out. And I like I like it when a film that came out early in the year that was maybe... Like a Mad Max, yeah, yeah, something like Mad Max the other year. Um, Captain Fantastic, well. Captain Sorry. Fantastic. That was a, yeah. I I like it when those what? earlier films. It was an early year film, Captain yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, were people talking about that? Well, it was nominated for Oscars, right? Sure. Viggo Mortensen's Dick got an Oscar nomination. <laughs> it's just a penis, Jack. <laughs> no, it's anyway. Viggo Mortensen's penis, Jake. <laughs> anyway, right. what were you saying, Eric? But like I, I certainly hope so that like it it stays on people's minds because it's I think it's certainly a lot more interesting than most of the films that people are talking about at the end of the year because I feel like you know even though a lot of critics and audiences try to discuss like all of the best films that came out 
um, in the past year, like it mostly kind of the, the consensus sort of uh, calcifies around stuff that's basically been released between August and December, um, yeah. which there's plenty of good films that come out during that time. But, you know, there, there was like, you know, several months more worth of, great yeah. culture that if was nothing great. if nothing else i think it's safe to say that more people have seen this movie than anything that was not that will be nominated for an oscar later on likely you know or Probably. certainly comparable i mean the, yeah. the best picture nominees are well we kind of as people who watch entirely too many films tend to decry <laughs> a lot of the best picture nominees as kind of you know middle of the road kind of flat m- mediocre films they're still considered niche by a large portion of the movie going public they don't see them they're not the movies they see they complain about how the oscars nominate films that no one watches and it's like we're thinking well no we watch all those those are easy to see it's like what about this really small independent movie that actually no one watched it's uh, this sense of perspective i mean what a hundred million ticket sales and what when was get out released was it two three weeks ago now you know it's it's like that's a significant amount of butts on seats people seeing yeah. this eyes seeing this this is something that will actually push genuine discussion or can push genuine discussion and sp- and speaking of of that um so this was i'm new to uh, a lot of like horror stuff as i said like this was my my pop culture like resolution is to watch more horror and get more of a feel but um jason bloom is having like an amazing year you know? <laughs> I, I mean, as much as I think Split is, uh, gar- like, garbage, like, sub-500 <laughs> like sub 500 level, um, I mean, like, these are both really fantastic uh, turnouts. Um, what do you guys, like, have you guys considered what's going to happen? Like, do you think he's going to become, like, sort of, like, a big deal? Or do you think this is going to sort of go, like, just, you know, ebb and flow, and he's just going to maintain as, like, this, you know, noteworthy producer? I think it depends on your strategy. I mean, what what always happens, or, or what often happens, is you think of something like Canon Pictures, who started off with the same kind of mold, which is low budget, make these films for very tight budgets, and then release them and basically have a guaranteed return. Roger Corman, the man who never lost money on a film, the idea is that you keep the budget of the film limited and controlled, you put out, you kind of, you you rein in the film and keep it in a little kind of box where it kind of isn't a financial danger. Other studios, though, there's this creep, and Canon was a good example of it, where the films became increasingly more expensive. You know, as they kind of consistently made money by keeping the films cheap, certain prestige projects crept in, taking more and more budget share. They started taking in, you know, offering actors huge amounts of money up front for, you know, multi-picture deals. I guess it, it depends on Bloom as a businessman what he what he's going for. It's hard to predict because this, there's a safe model which is you know releasing kind of your your cheaper films and kind of safe models. But um, you know if you start making these big movies and if one of those fails, you can lose many pictures worth of profits in very quick order. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's crazy. He made like thirty million dollars more or less last year <laughs> two movies. <laughs> And it's it's what uh, March, <laughs> the second week of March. Yeah, I don't know what his. It's tough to say what his future is because a Get Out is certainly a pleasant surprise, but a lot of his other films are just complete garbage. And I don't think I could, I couldn't force myself to sit through a Purge film, or another Insidious if he makes another one of those. I mean, I'm I'm looking through his 
his catalog here. I mean, he did. I never, I never saw the Gallows. Was was the Gallows not good? Apparently not. It's supposed to be terrible. Yeah, I prefer when there's elevators up to them. Uh, (laughs) that's a French movie, Louis Everybody. Louis Mal, we got. <laughs> now that we've alienated that section of the audience. Well, I mean, Blue Mouse follows a pretty standard sort of horror trope for production. I mean, all they do, the, it's been the model since at least the 80s where you just, uh, you're, you're pumping stuff out. They throw a lot of movies in theaters, Blue Mouse does, and yeah. it's just, you know, something hits. And when you're spending $4 million a film, when something makes 100 then... You can make a lot more films. I I think he's already a pretty profound name in the horror world. Uh, quality uh, disregarded, if you will. But uh, <laughs> well, you know, the horror is, genre is the most forgiving genre. Horror movie fans, diehards, will show up to anything. Oh, yeah. And I mean, to yeah. to their credit, in one way, because they'll really champion the the gems that come out of that. But they, if you're a horror movie diehard fan, you're going to sit through a lot of garbage. Yeah, those people would probably go see like Bye Bye Man and talk about it. Like, I was just podcast. thinking did Bye Bye Man. <laughs> uh, wow. Um, yeah. Well, uh, do we do we have anything else to say about Get Smart? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think subversive is the key word here. It, it, a lot of the characters uh, just serve to subvert expectations as much as the film does. It's genre, and uh, you you really never know where things are headed. I think Stephen Root is a pretty perfect example of that. Like you're, you're almost, he's almost posited as like this, almost actual progressive in this sea of faux progressives, and he turns out to be kind of almost the worst of the bunch. Uh, but it is, uh, yeah, it, it is in every turn subversive, and I think for for me, what it brought to mind was it's almost like. A white exploitation film. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it, Is that yeah, like a it, reverse it, racism thing? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it, it kind of just takes all these like tropes of white society and rich society and, and throws it back at you in a way I, I was not expecting coming in, and it was uh, welcome. And for that reason, yeah. it is I guess we'll start to transition into some of the other stuff we watched to pair with this. Uh, which is when I thought of white exploitation, I immediately thought of uh, uh, Larry Cohen's debut film, which is one I really love. Uh, Yafet Kato starring as Bone. Uh, who else watched this one? That's the Snoop Dogg one, right? Yes, Snoop Dogg's Bone. Yafet Kato <laughs> and Snoop Dogg. Yes. <laughs> I watched this. This I've not seen this before. This is a great recommendation, Adam. Um, this is Second actually Larry. Day. Yeah, Larry Cohen's film debut as a director. He was primarily a writer up until this. And this is such an unusual film. I'm a Larry Cohen fan based on what I've seen of his work. He's a, he's like a absolute evergreen cult director. He makes these low-budget, weird films, with often with subversive elements to them. But when I think Larry Cohen, I think, you know, New York. I think, um, you know, like a New York set up... Uh, you know, grim, dirty streets, all that kind of stuff. This is like a sun-bleached West Coast film. It's a very completely different to everything I would associate with them. And this film is, again, to drop an art film reference, I mean, this is basically like Pasolini's Teorema 
with with a racial subtext rather than a classist subtext, although those things are not entirely set inseparable uh, in American society. But yeah, I mean, effectively, to, to recap the story, it's essentially a wealthy or an apparently wealthy white couple, Yafet Kato, who plays this black guy named Bone, who basically breaks into their house, kidnaps both of them, and basically wants the, the man to go and get withdraw his money from the bank on the threat that he will rape and or murder his wife if he doesn't do it. Um, But as he starts to realize, as the film progresses, this seemingly well-to-do couple are incredibly dysfunctional, almost crumbling. Uh, They have their own neuroses, and and eventually his allies kind of appear in unusual places. It becomes this very completely different perspective, and this, this disruptive black element kind of shatters this seemingly ideal marriage in a very unusual way. Yeah, I mean, this is, this movie, I guess you could almost say Get Out seems downright gentle and it's a, <laughs> it's critique of, of white society compared to what Bone does here. It is just vicious. It's a very vicious and difficult film, but it, for me, it's a standout. It's one that, Larry Cohen's not well known for. Uh, most people think of something like Cue the Winged Serpent or It's Alive, and this is so much more significant than those films. It's uh, it is, kind it's of a that's like lost to history. Yeah, it's a much more it's a much more uh, writerly film. It's much more like a play, um, where Cohen's later films tend to focus more on either very high concept weird thing like God Told Me To, which is one of my favorite Larry Cohen films, which is just an it's an indescribably strange film. Uh, if you've never seen it, go and watch it. It's You will not see another film like it. Um, but a lot of other films like uh, The Stuff or, you know, he wrote the Maniac Cop films that are much more kind of centered around visual tropes, around special effects and gore and, and you know, weird kind of you know, plot elements, the genre trappings. This is very much just conversation. There's nothing like, supernatural or exceptional here. This is, it feels almost like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but in some way almost more sinister again. Yeah, I also saw Bone, and this was my first foray into a Larry Cohen film. Um, but I was consistently blown away by, like Adam said, how razor sharp this script is and how how really subversive the film is because when you settle into it, you, it's almost like I was just going to watch this, this grimy exploitation feature, which I wasn't really in the mood for, but then the film keeps sort of reinventing itself and is setting up these new issues with the characters and their morals. And I thought it was just a brilliantly made film from, for what I thought it was going to be. So that it kept subverting my expectations. It's a, it was truly astonishing. Yeah, and it's a, it's really not even an exploitation film. Like nothing, there is no rape in the film or anything of that nature. It's just no. I I think of it in my memory is like far worse than it was revisiting it. I'm like, wait, nothing ever. A lot, yeah, a lot of the thread is implied. There is a sex scene in it that begins as rape or as an intended rape, and then again becomes flipped because there this sexual, uh, what we say, suppression of the woman and the the. Thing. She starts to essentially, without trying to spoil too much of the film, I mean, say uh, the relationship with the husband and wife crumble to a point where Bone becomes an ally or a, more of a, a useful ally to the woman than her own husband, who kind of goes off on his own misadventure because he, he kind of sees the point that if he if this guy was to kill his wife, that wouldn't be the worst thing. It's almost like the Zucker film, uh, The Ruthless People, you know, with 
Betty Midler and, and so on. Um, the idea where they kidnap Dan, Danny DeVito's wife and Danny DeVito decides not to pay the ransom because his wife is horrible. It's, <laughs> it's almost like a play on that, but with, like I say, this really kind of fanged social comment on white people. And this is absolutely white people as white upper class people as this kind of other alien species of just uh, deeply supplanted neuroses and uh, kind of sublimated sexual and financial aggressions that they're, you know, people who are all living on credit and kind of married for appearances and maintaining a certain standard of life that they are not even happy with, but it's, it's what reflects a correct stance in life, you know, and all of it starts crumbling around based on this one character invading the, the scenario. Yeah. It's like, is there anything better than that uh, scene where the wife and bone are like having a therapy session about his erectile dysfunction? And it is just, (laughs) man, it is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, there is no point in this film where you really know what's going to happen next. You know, even even taking in that, you know, I think certainly this is Larry Cohen's version of of Teorema, the the Pasolini film. I'm sure he saw that film. I'm and the more I, the more films I see, the more I realize how archetypal that Pasolini film is. From you know, from Bone to Visitor Q, the Takashi Miike film, and so on. There's so many films that kind of take that framework of a, of a uh, unwelcome or an unusual actor coming in and fracturing a uh, uh, social milieu that's just barely hanging together that appears to be solid but actually is is very tenuously connected. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it's just a very unusual film because even even more so almost than Pasolini's film, this film starts going in directions I never even considered and partially because of my expectations of a Larry Cohen film, which is he's clever. His films are. R- often very clever and very well made and it's certainly in terms of how he he utilizes a small budget to create much larger effects but this film has um you know he just he goes and tackles subjects i've never seen larry Cohn that i never would have imagined he would have tackled he says things his character has become mouthpieces for arguments and viewpoints i never would have considered finding in a film like this and i say this looked like as jake was saying this looks like you're going into an exploitation film and no you're not you're going into like like a, a an Italian or French art film, almost like this this horrible view of a of a crumbling bourgeois couple. It is powerful stuff. Sean, did you get around to watching this? Uh, I did not. No, oh, good work. Good I, I work. think you would actually like this one, Sean. <laughs> I, I I didn't I didn't I didn't uh, avoid it, but um, I I just didn't get around to it. How about you, Eric? Um, I. I managed to watch maybe the first 20 minutes of it, and then I sort of got uh, sidetracked, and I never got back around to it. But what I saw was fascinating. I've been meaning to go get back to it. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I have nothing more to add. All right, all right. A couple of bums here. Um, <laughs> we, Yeah, I think this is getting a hearty recommendation from me as something that, again, feels vital today. And yeah. I had never heard of it. Yeah, most people yeah. haven't. And again, yeah. Larry Cohen, a very well-known filmmaker, but most of his Fred Williamson black exploitation films, and and yeah, a bunch of cheapo rubber suit horror. But this yeah. is something different entirely. Yeah, this How film does... doesn't fit the Larry Cohen brand, so I think it's just kind of gotten left behind, unfortunately. How does it stack up to the uh, the uh, Fox program Bones? 
<laughs> uh, less David Boreanaz, but uh, other than that, yeah, very similar, strikingly similar. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what else did we watch for this? We watched uh, something, uh, a film set in uh, Jack's future home, uh, <laughs> Cabrini Green. Cabrini Green, yes. Uh, we watched. Green, <laughs> We watched another great film, uh, one of the very best horror films of the 90s for my money, uh, film based on Clive Barker. Uh, I'm, I can't remember. Is it called The Immortal? The I Forbidden, I believe. Oh, the Forbidden. Okay. Yeah. This is Candyman. Yeah. This, uh, who, this is a film. Saw that, that, right? Yeah. This, this is a film that I, seeing this again, absolutely. I, I got to say, I'm I'm completely, I thought Candyman was good, but watching it again recently, I think it's absolutely fascinating film i'm i'm kind of i i'm just trying to try not to geek out too hard on this right now um because it really it's 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 a mess of a film i mean i, I think we can all probably agree it's a film that kind of gets lost in its own oh. mechanics at times and kind of it very models around in places but it's such an unusual film and it's based on a clive barker short short story which i believe is set in liverpool and maybe a council housing estate in Liverpool, which is Clyde Barker's, I believe, home city. I think he's from there. Um, but it's a, another Englishman who worked with Barker who directed the film. I can't think of his name to, off the top of my head. He also has a small role acting in it. But it was him who who considered relocating it to Cabrini Green in Chicago, which is a, a housing estate, a project estate in, in Chicago, now demolished, but became a kind of focal point in the 90s in U.S. politics because of a number of very high-profile criminal elements there and they, these these projects housing projects were crumbling and falling into disrepair and as is kind of often the case in these things the residents were blamed for it low-income residents who really had no choice but to live there and had forged a community there were suddenly being held accountable why can't they take care of their own stuff but of course that's not really the reality of it it was it was left to be destroyed by by poor management with the government and eventually as it was demolished and they claimed that people could move back in when they built a new stuff they reclaimed the land and only a tiny fraction of the people who lived there uh, ever made it back it was sold as you know um just recently i saw a listing in cabrini green or what was cabrini green for an apartment or a condo that was a uh, five hundred forty nine thousand dollars to purchase um, this is what replaced low-income housing for primarily African-American communities. It basically, it was a land grab, you know. Um, Candyman functions on all of that because it's it's kind of flips the script on the white savior. And that's what I, I think is fascinating about this film. It's a story about a woman who's investigating uh, urban legends. And one of the urban legends you find is the Candyman, who's talked about primarily in African-American communities and in Cabrini-Green specifically here. Um, and she kind of she's a, a woman of science, effectively, and this uh, kind of has that science folklore kind of a science magic kind of divide that's often used in horror cinema. I'm thinking of something like Wes Craven's Serpent and the Rainbow, and many other films have that, where where a white person of reason is confronted with something entirely unreasonable. Um, it kind of tracks all of that in there. She kind of goes into thinking it's an urban legend and finds out that it actually isn't, but. Um, she becomes increasingly entrenched into this African-American milieu and essentially it completely engulfs her. It destroys her in the film effectively, but it's this really interesting subversion of, of a white person injecting themselves again into a conversation that's not really theirs, but they feel they know better. They feel they can make a difference. They feel they can, they can change things because they have, you know, a person of science of reason of social standing 
and they're unwelcome. They make things worse. I think she categorically makes things worse for the residents of Cabrini Green because she effectively <laughs> resurrects a hook-handed monster. So, um, you know, it's it's a really fascinating film on that level. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what other people took from because honestly, this film has ideas out the wazoo. It's fucking all over the place. In in some ways, I kind of appreciated it more than Get Out. Like, Get Out, I, I kind of liked more on, like, a visceral, like, pure entertainment level. Um, but like you said... I would agree with that. But, yeah, like, but I feel like this film was, like, much more, like, interesting in terms of, like, its subtext and what it's saying and everything. Like, I, I, I feel like this is a film that is a lot richer and more interesting to discuss because, because like you said, Jack, it's just so, like, all over the place with its ideas and with, you know, what it's saying. Like, in some ways, like, I do agree with you. It is sort of a subversion of, like, the white savior trope. But in some ways, it's also, like, it also kind of contradictory. In, in a contradictory manner, it also kind of still maintains that in, in a weird way, at least by the time you get to the end of the yeah, film. Yeah, the end of the film makes very... I think the end of the film makes very little sense in the context of the rest of the film. I don't, you know, And this is part of the interesting thing of weighing it up. I can't help but compare it certain to like something like Hellraiser, another Clive Barker adaptation. And Hellraiser is, for my money, hands down, a masterpiece of horror cinema. I think it's an <laughs> amazing film. But it is absolutely a film that has sections and entire characters that shouldn't be there. It's yeah. you know, and that's and Candyman has that same thing. It's this balancing act of there's so much in there that's so rich and and textured, and then there's elements of when you're like, why do, do they? Who put this together? <laughs> Yeah, it suffered from that like sort of late 80s, early 90s need to have a recurring like horror icon. It uh, the the whole ending felt a little tacked on to me. I mean, I love aspects of it, but God, if you would have just even ended with the husband like speaking her name into the mirror and then nothing happening, well, that's great. But this like bringing her back with a bad scalp piece and, uh... <laughs> yeah i mean it it doesn't make a lot of sense because what, what does candy man represent within the film so i mean the story of candy man is essentially he's a son of a slave uh born into freedom a, a son of a man who who earned his freedom from slavery around that time and made his money in uh with an invention i believe that in something to do with the production of shoes i believe they mentioned but he he made a fortune he brought his son into the fold he um raised him with a rich artistic background in music and arts and literature and so on. He basically got out his son to escape from the slave experience. And then, and that was fine. And everyone liked his son because he was painterly. He was artistically talented. He painted portraits, but then he marries a what, or he hooks up, I guess, with a white woman and a girl gets her pregnant and gets lynched for that because in the time that was an unacceptable transgression. It was kind of like he he escaped the role of the, the slave or the black man to enough a point where white people would endure him when he could offer something to them. But when he transgressed to having a, a relationship with a white woman, he became unacceptable and was murdered and horrifically tortured. And then he becomes this vengeful spirit who can be invoked by saying his name... But is that my? That's probably my dog making noise. <laughs> um, so um, he 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 can be invoked by saying his name five times in a mirror, and um, that's your dog's uh, trying to complain. The candy man. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's trying. He's trying to invoke him. So oh, he, do you have becomes, do you have one of those racist dogs? Oh yeah, yeah. No, he, <laughs> he 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 hates Jewish people though. Weirdest thing. 
So, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he, he becomes this kind of vengeful spirit. He keeps, and he preys primarily on the African-American community within the film. So it's this white person comes in to, to bring him out. And it's kind of unusual. He's a specter over the African-American community who scares the children there and keeps them in kind of sub kind of keeps them in chains. He's, he causes violence in their community and she invokes him. And then in the end of the film, she becomes another specter. It doesn't make sense that she, she is no equivalent experience to Candyman. And it's, it's kind of, inf- it's inferred at some point in the film or, or implied that she is kind of maybe the rebirth of the white woman that Candyman impregnated back in the 1800s. But that's not a, like, that's not a meaningful element that's kind of like something that would appear in a lot of horror films because it kind of has a poetic element to it but it doesn't lend anything to to the film i i felt like i got the sense that throughout the film that they were kind of what what was trying to be done what the screenwriter and the director what we're trying to do was like sort of equate because i got many instances where it's like Basically, um, the female lead, I can't remember her name, Virginia Madsen is the actress who plays her. Um, She's facing like a lot of um, sexism from older male academics. And so I I got the sense that with like that ending with her being resurrected that I don't know if this is what they were trying to go for. But what I got from it was like the film was sort of equating racism and sexism. And yeah, which 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 is problematic, which is yeah, which is. You know, like I can sort of understand. I guess I can understand the instinct to to go there, but obviously that that brings up a whole host of issues. That you know, they're they're very different issues at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's a, something that reminds me actually of a film like The Help, which I saw recently, which essentially yeah. posits that uh, white women in the 1960s had a lot of problems too. So they really like. African Americans and white women have like a lot in common, so you know that's cool. And it's like this incredibly troublesome message that's put into that film. Like, just the help is a racist movie. Just it's worse than Hidden Figures. Um, and for some reason, I watched both of them one after each other uh, one day by pure coincidence, and I was kind of shocked by the help at how bad a film it was. So don't watch that. Watch uh, Bone instead. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I and, just and if, I don't really get that ending because the whole film you you have Virginia Madsen given very sort of prominent Madonna imagery, and even the credit scene with, where the Candyman painting in Cabrini Green has been replaced by her, but she's fueled as this sort of she's not a vengeful spirit. There's no reason she's kind of like lifted the curse of the Candyman, perhaps, and to to point to her as this exact same figure like why would she be exacting this vengeance on her husband i mean obviously there's some animosity there but the the whole film's in it it's it's about the power of fear and myth making and the husband yeah, I, was not was not saying her name in fear and awe it was it, it really just didn't fit in with the whole it felt yeah, very it, studio interference <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think they just got tripped up by the the mechanics of what normal horror films do, and I think Candyman is not a normal horror film, and I it, which is great, but I think they they fell back into a couple of traps with that. I don't know if she lifted the curse of the Candyman though; she saved a child's life because she by by going in, I guess by going in there with her concept, her her study of urban tales, urban folk tales, she 
diminished Candyman. He threatened him by providing a rationalization of him. So he kidnaps a child to reinstate his his fearsome reputation almost and she goes above and beyond to rescue that child but i mean that 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 procession when her funeral arrives and after her being effectively burnt at the stake like a witch uh, which is an interesting kind of a, a visual cue to begin with but then her uh, whole procession of of african americans from the cabrini green project show up to her funeral and throw the hook Candyman's hook onto her casket and I, there's, it's a very ambiguous scene. I don't know if it's, are they grateful to her? Are they, she was the source of their problems. She made things worse. It's, it's something that's, and it's what I think really wor- is interesting with Candyman. And partly it's because maybe it's so mixed up in certain points is there's a great amount of ambiguity to it. I think you could have all kinds of discussions about what exact meanings are, or, you know, kind of the different shades of, 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 uh, kind of the the herodom of the the heroine is she a hero is she a villain i like personally i think she's a disruptive force i think she as i say this is why i interpret very much as as the white savior who injects herself into fix things and makes things totally worse because she's not really she doesn't really belong there she doesn't even understand the rules of the thing that she supposedly is is able to fix yeah, I think well, that until that coda, you could you could argue that there is no candy mans. <laughs> yeah, I think the ending's really uh, really flimsy, and it's sort of like the film is trying to have its cake and eat it too, and and it offers this, I guess, this supposed transference of the curse onto her character now. Um, but one thing I wanted to just add about Candyman because I had seen it earlier this year, right before I saw the Bye Bye Man, because I was getting into my man horror movies. And um, I was really, I enjoyed it when I watched it, but it was a film that I couldn't quite shake from my mind. And I think that's a testament to, uh, quite, and I think that's a testament to what how... Is this, what is this, BBC News? How well made it is and how it really conjures this terrifying atmosphere, kind of like um, Get Out. And I think part of that is really aided, not just by the gorgeous cinematography, but also the the phenomenal philip glass score and i think oh, also Candyman is a, a terrific villain and his uh, first appearance in the film which isn't until halfway through the film's even over is like legendary uh, with his booming voice and his hook and it's it's the stuff that dreams are made of for me uh, I, i'm glad you i'm glad you mentioned the the score um because yeah. that I, I I don't know who shot the film, but uh, the cinematography coupled with the the score uh, when they do that like bird's eye view of the city, it's like these very lateral shots. It's just like beautiful and and really sets like an interesting, um, ominous tone, I guess, uh, to use that phrase, um, similar to uh, Get Out, where it's just like you don't really know what's going on yet, but something's going on. Yeah, I. Absolutely. this is a beautiful movie, and I will say what separates it and Hellraiser for me is, like, Hellraiser is Clive Barker's creation. And, and Candyman, to me, I I was disappointed to, to see Bernard Rose, the director, really hasn't done anything else I've ever heard of, because this feels like, I have not read The Immortal, but it, or The Forbidden, sorry, I don't know why I keep calling it The Immortal, but... um. <laughs> The it, it feels like this is a more vital and significant work than I'm sure that story is. It just seems like they added, like Bernard Rose as the co-writer and director added so much subtext to this film that I can't imagine exists in the story that's not with a totally different setting. And it it is, 
yeah, it's a really unique collaboration and it's a very beautiful film, I think. And again, that Philip Glass score is an all timer. That's just beautiful. Yeah. It's a shame yeah. he, he actually does not like the film supposedly because it was, he was pitched as it being less of a, a horror film. Yeah. He, it's, it's also an, uh, an unsung, um, Philip Glass score. Um, I feel like, like I'm, I, I'm, I'm like a relatively big fan of his and I didn't know about that, uh, for the longest time. And, and, um, even after I had heard, like it, it was never, it was never mentioned alongside like other scores that he's done. God, it's probably my favorite score he's done, honestly. And I'm a yeah, huge fan of his as well. It's, it's pretty great. Yeah. I was, it, to, to get back to, to Adam just saying, but I think, the, yeah, for the director, I think he he takes so much credit for this because literally Candyman, everything that's interesting about the film is about the location. It's completely uh, invested in its kind of location on a housing, on an African-American housing estate in the United States. There's nothing in here that, you know, would work in England. So they must be, without having read the Clive Barker story, there, there's, there can't have been too much overlap between them this is a completely separate entity i feel it would have to be um and that that really is a testament to a director really coming up with a very interesting spin on the material um and if only that would happen more often yeah yeah so uh, i think we're just about through we also watched well at least some of us watched uh <laughs> Well, we had watched People Under the Stairs. I know I didn't watch that because I've seen it once, and, and that was enough. Did anyone watch People Under the Stairs for this project? I did not. Uh, no. I'd, I did because I, oh, I'd seen okay. it once, and that was enough. But then I watched it again because why not? And it's basically the most intense kids movie ever made um, in, a, in, a, in a way. It's not a very good movie. It's Wes Craven, who I just mentioned before, actually, with The Serpent and the Rainbow. And Wes Craven is an interesting one. Like He and George Romero seem to be white horror Terrible. directors yeah white horror directors who seem to at some point decide they were be going going to become white saviors we're going to redeem and rescue african-american politics um george <laughs> romero did it by accident effectively with land uh, with night of the living dead where he cast an african-american in the lead role and it was a really it, it lent a political subtext to the film that was really successful and when critics pointed that out to George Romero, who I think just cast the best actor who auditioned. He, you know, he, he was clearly open-minded enough to not even really care that the guy was African-American. He was just the best actor, and he cast him, and then it created this whole subtext of the film. And then George Romero seemed to run with that. And I'm a big fan of Romero's work, a lot, well, up to a point, I guess. But, um, you know, he started inserting African-American characters throughout his films, and with varying degrees of awkwardness, uh, right up to the point that one of my favorite stories is that uh, Morgan Freeman stormed out of an audition for George Romero when he handed him the script, uh, basically saying that he wasn't going to read it. It was ridiculous. And um, for Knight Riders, which that, that role is... Oh, that actually, script. Yeah. That, that script was, that, was awfully fucking ridiculous. It is a movie about... Uh, like the King Arthur's court riding around on motorcycles. It's yeah, yeah. I I really <laughs> like that movie. I gotta admit, I think oh, it's a great. It's a, it's a film about it's 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 like a weird extended allegory for independent filmmaking, but it also involves jousting on motorcycles. But it also involves a jazz bebop poet played by by a guy named Brother Blue. I can't remember if that's his name in the film or not. But so Morgan Freeman, to say I do not like that film. Yeah, yeah. That that's apparent. But yeah, Morgan Freeman <laughs> auditioned for that movie and actually stormed out swearing at George. Romero, which is an amazing image to me. Um, Wes Craven did a similar thing. He's, he kind of, with Serpent in the Rainbow, he went to Haiti, and uh, People Under the Stairs is set in, kind of uh, takes this precept of, of a, 
a white couple who are basically slumlords who are who have bought up all this this real estate and have left it decay, and they have an African American populace who are struggling to make do because they keep jacking up the rents. But the film itself is basically it's a cat and mouse game in this weird torture house. Uh, where where there's people living under the stairs in the walls. They've kind of they, they they're an insane religious couple. They're kind of fanatical. They are obsessed with sin and purity. And anyone in their household who fails to live up to their insane standards of purity, they basically uh, cut their tongue out so they can no longer speak evil, and then throw them into the basement and just live them. They they're raised as like feral kind of animals. And this kid basically gets caught in the house and he has to run around and try and avoid the everyone. It's a bizarre film that solves the class crisis of, of the, the slums or whatever and the economic division between African-Americans and white people by basically blowing up a house and having money rain down on the population um, in a powerful image that's ridiculous. Um, I- it's... Yeah, it's it's not like the people on the stairs are what sum it up. I think it's it's about amusing enough to watch once, but it's not a film that I find it, it is very funny in places, and I think it's best viewed as a comedy because it's got some absolutely absurd elements to it, including a man in a like in a full leather dominating dominatrix suit running around with a shotgun just shooting up his own house, trying to kill someone in the walls. Like it's absurd. Um, it's just the, the film just it doesn't have it it meanders it feels too long it's it doesn't have anything to say its view of racial relations is absurd um yeah not not a great movie so it's it's not fair to call um get out uh meet the parents under the stairs no that's very fair because that's <laughs> you worked really hard on that one sean <laughs> uh well wow. that's a good segue because we did all watch um the three uh, Meet the Parents films, correct? Yeah, I saw Little Fockers twice because I thought I dreamed it, but it, uh, it, it, I no, I'm kidding. Sean, <laughs> go ahead with your Fockers. That was really the extent of it. Yep, that's it. We, we didn't watch that. We're not going to watch that. I think that's all that's left with society, right? That was it. We're, we're on to another film I don't really like. But uh, clearly... <laughs> Adam's such a hater. Clearly, it evokes a very similar sort of uh, mood, and it has. I think it's got a really similar message to uh, what uh, Peel was pulling off with Get Out, and uh, it's a lot less competent. But uh, some people here love it, so I'm going to let them talk about it because I don't have a lot to say other than, well, there's some good ideas here and some some fine makeup work, and other than that, uh, you can have it. I'll just jump in. I'll jump in real quick first and say that I've seen Society once, and I do agree, Adam, it has a really kind of dull first hour, but I think the final 20 minutes more than makes up for it and just the sheer carnage and beautiful effects that are on the screen there. But, uh, yeah. Jack, I you really like this movie enjoy, a lot. Go ahead. I, I really enjoy it. I think I'm, I'm, the, I'm the white savior for, for society. I'm going to wow. save this movie. <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah. No, every time, like, society is a, absolutely the definition of a cult movie. And I was discussing this with Adam earlier. I mentioned how a lot of it, like, it's absolutely, it's a mess of a movie. It's got so many problems with it. It's got budget issues and pacing issues. But the, every time I watch it, I, I kind of take all of those issues and they become almost a, a, a strength. They almost become a kind of a, an interesting kind of. Uh, unusual nugget that separates it from so many other films 
um, it, it society essentially posits that the rich are a different species, that they are not simply, you know, their, their, their callousness towards their fellow man is because fellow man is not them. They are some other kind of creature that literally feeds on poor people. And this becomes the, the, the element for the, the finale of the shunting, which is, if you've not seen it, certainly not like many other things you'll see in a film. Um, it's Brian Usna directed the film, and it was really, I can't remember if it was the first film he directed or not, but he kind of, he came off producing Reanimator, which was a big hit, and Reanimator is a kind of a, a esteemed horror classic at this point. Um, Usna is not as good a director as Stuart Gordon, who helmed Reanimator. Usna produced that. He he then took up the directorial uh, reins with with society, and it's a movie that's very uneven and inter- and and kind of has a lot of problems. Usna also directed Bride of Reanimator, which is another movie that kind of in a way trips up over itself. It, start, it, it doesn't realize where its strengths lie. Society also has that problem. But the more I like it, because it's a movie about class in America. So it really makes sense. The movie has this weird soap operatic feel. It's kind of got a dreamlike kind of sense to it. The pacing meanders. It falls through. You kind of wonder why even certain parts are left in it. There's a certain mystery to it. And the resolution of that mystery is the most batshit insane thing you could imagine. Um, I don't know. I just really like this film. See, this is where... It loses me, is like especially on repeat viewing. I think the one thing that pulled me through the first hour, which is just one of the more poorly paced uh, pieces of cinema I've ever sat through. Uh, but it is, it's that mystery. You're like, okay, where, where's this going? What the hell's happening in this town? Uh, and well, yeah, once you know what's going to happen, it, it's like, what's, it, it's just nothing keeping me interested. I'm like, oh, God, just fucking get to it already. <laughs> yeah, well, see, and, and uh, I don't mind the pacing on that first hour because it's it's got Billy Warlock, whose biggest claim to fame is Baywatch. And I think he was only in like the first season or so of Baywatch, you know, and playing this, this rich kid who's kind of an angsty teen wondering what his pair, you know, if his parents are you know, really, you know, on his side or not, and he's getting psychiatric evaluation for it because he's depressed and having these problems, and the film kind of interweaves this into this, you know, as it turns out, you know, they actually are all out to get him. It's not just teen angst in this instance. Um, I don't know, it's just, like I say, it's a film that I just, I kind of like the way it meanders, the cheap, you talk about, like, the Richard Band score, this kind of, it's got this weedly kind of stupid score, but then it's also got the, I can't remember, the, there's some song that they play this kind of it's a boating song from one of like from oxford or something oxford college so like you know kind of an upper class kind of song that you could imagine people singing while drinking brandy you know um it kind of interweaves this into this weird imagery that that integrates later on um it's just yeah it's just a film that i just really i kind of admire because society is not like other films and i think part of the the unease of its its incompetencies in a lot of ways are redeemed by the fact that this is a film that's about an uncertain protagonist pursuing an uncertain line of questioning. That's kind of, so I kind of, I kind of like the way that it moves either way. It's got a certain stiltedness to it that, like I say, has a kind of a dreamlike oneric quality. I don't know. Like I said, I think kind of you, you apportion as with a lot of cult cinema, you kind of take its negatives and they, they over time can become kind of defining kind of characteristics that almost start to become strengths. They kind of become something you enjoy. So it's like the room 
you know, the, the, the terrible script, the, the ridiculous dialogue, although let's, let's be clear, society's in nowhere near as poorly made a film as The Room. But, it, you know, its, its weaknesses become defining characteristics and become almost things that draw you back to it repeatedly. Perhaps its uniqueness is uh, diluted for me by the fact that I have inexplicably seen eight Brian Yuzna movies. That's about how many I've seen. Maybe, yeah, if you're not a Yuzna fan, geez, that, that well gets kind of shallow uh, pretty quick. Because, I mean, on, honestly, after what after Society and uh, the bride, Bridery Animator and probably The Dentist, I think Yuzna ran out of money pretty quick. As, uh, yeah, Return of the Living Dead 3, which I believe oh, yeah. you made us watch. <laughs> That's right, which is a great film, whatever. Uh, actually, I'd forgotten about that one. That actually, I think, is actually in a, one of the better zombie movies out there, or certainly one of the more interesting ones. But then Yuzna moved all his productions to Spain and started making movies like uh, Rothweiler and uh, uh, yep, the, seen that. the yeah, that was great, great movie. If you happen to be very drunk, um, <laughs> at least, uh, and and I can't remember. He also, I believe, produced a movie called The Nun. I believe that was a movie made, which I've just renamed. <laughs> Aquanon, because it's literally about an evil nun spirit that like lives in water, and it's every bit as bad as that sounds. So check that one out if you hate yourself. Um, but yeah, Yuzna, Yuzna started off like he's a horror fan through and through. Whenever he talks cinema, he loves horror cinema, like Jordan Peele. But Yuzna is not as organized as Jordan Peele appears to be thus far. So Yuzna has a man of grand ideas who pursues really interesting elements and that's that elevates his earlier work when he had the money to pursue it but it also means that he absolutely gets tripped up and like she gets his shoelaces tied together and stumbles around in the dark at points trying to figure out how to make that one great scene that he had to put in because it's the great scene trying to make that scene link up with everything else that's actually in the film and that's kind of that's that's the the joy of a usnf film is trying to go like what is he even doing here Ah, you guys can have this. Sean, did you watch Society? <laughs> I did not. You but should. I've heard, oh, I've heard the um, Pennywise song many times. I don't even know what you're referring to. So, uh, <laughs> Eric, did you get around to Society? I didn't even know we were talking about it. So. <laughs> oh, that's that's no. good. You're all right. that's all right. You're not missing much, man. It's if you could describe every film we've talked about as. Uh, atmospheric to an extent uh, i would i would say that what whatever the merits of society are it is it is not atmospheric i see i i'm just saying you just you got to you got to meet it halfway adam i i tried i went back in with an open mind on this one and then that score just started drilling in my ears and i was like fuck and shut this movie off <laughs> Okay, so speaking of things Eric's not prepared for, we're going to wrap this fucker up, and we are doing putovers because this is Outback Prime. Uh, so I'm going to go to Eric last because he doesn't know what the hell we're doing here, and I, I suppose I'll start things off. I was just recently watching a show called The Expanse, which is uh, pretty ace sci-fi. It might be the best science fiction show I've seen since Battlestar Galactica. It is some Expanse. really good stuff. That sounds like uh, sounds like some like Scientology literature. Uh, okay, I I don't know about that, but uh, anyhow, it's it's uh, yeah, it's about like uh, future Earth colonies, and, and there's a lot of interplanetary uh, political strife, and uh, it's very interesting. It's definitely a worth a watch. Anyone who's, who's into the hard science fiction, you, you like yourself some. 
Battlestar, some uh, Star Trek, go ahead and check out The Expanse. What's the Starring program? Thomas Jane. <laughs> What's the program? Wow. The I mean, Expanse. I mean, not, not program. Sorry, 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 sorry. What is the network? I believe it is actually on Sci-Fi. And what's the program again? <laughs> it is The Expanse, starring Thomas Jane. Uh, Sean, since you're so eager to jump in here, why not tell us what you're putting over this week? Yeah, uh, last night I had the chance to see um, a singer-songwriter that I've liked uh, for a long time named Jens Lekman. Uh He's uh, of Swedish heritage and um uh he's on a uh a nice little indie label in bloomington indiana secretly canadian and he is a guy that's been making records for like a decade but um pretty sparsely uh over the um second half of that decade and he has a new record and it's it's really good um i i believe it's like the do- it's it's some play on the doctor. We'll see you now. It doesn't matter, but you, you can find it. But uh, Jens Lekman, J E N S L E K M A N, and his show last night was just fantastic. Um, it was it was good entertainment. Sean, that's in the past. We can't we can't go I, I'm to the s- show. I, no, I'm sorry. I'm s- it's not much will put help to our audience. I'm saying I'm saying check out the record because it's good if you're if you're a fan or whatever or you're looking for a place did to start film, did you film the concert or something i i have some videos um but more than that uh if you are unfamiliar with jens lechman i am putting over jens lechman's catalog okay 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 uh and a particular performance from a few days back uh oh, moving on god moving on uh jake what are you putting over this week so I saw a new order at the Greek Theater about two years ago, and I recommend that. <laughs> you, you really recommend listening to Blue I Monday? It, I recommend go to that concert if you can. Um, no, as much as I'd love to recommend um, the new Olivier Assayas film, I know that's not readily available yet. So I'm going to recommend a film I watched on Netflix called uh, "I Don't Feel at Home on This World Anymore," which is the new film by an actor named Macon Blair. He was in Blue Ruin and in Green Room. And it kind of plays like a blue ruin light where it's about this woman who uh, is really sort of tired of um, being a pushover. And she finds that her one day her house has been broken into and her laptop's missing. So she tracks down the laptop and it basically sets off this spiraling, escalating series of violent events happening to her and her neighbor who's played by uh, uh, Elijah Wood who can do karate. And uh, it's a very fun and interesting thriller. And anyone, who's, first, anyone who's seen Sin City knows that Elijah Wood can do martial arts. Right, yeah. Yeah, he carries that over in this film, obviously. <laughs> so um, you would say, would you say it's more like a light blue ruin? It's like a light blue ruin. Um, it doesn't, like the escalating violence doesn't work as well as uh, Jeremy Saulnier's film. But I think it's a very diverting what 95 minutes or so and uh it actually won won the top prize at sundance this year and it's already available on netflix so if you're looking for a good like thing, a, check it out like a baby blue ruin. like yeah, yeah this is baby blue ruin Turquoise all right ruin. all right uh moving on i don't want to hear sean talk anymore uh <laughs> jack what are you putting over this week okay good um i'm gonna put over a movie called the young offenders which is now on Netflix. I realized it was on Netflix yesterday. It's an Irish film, um, and it's actually a really entertaining comedy. 
based on a real event that happened around somewhat based on a real event where the, basically uh, a drug shipment basically washed up on shore. The, the boat sank and the drugs washed up on shore and a bunch of people in this film, two teenagers, basically decide they're going to cycle down to the shore to try and uh, get the get the drugs to make a load of money. Um, so it's basically like kind of a comedy story of friendship between boys, but it's got, it's really entertaining, really funny film, very Irish. So I guess that may, your mileage may vary on this as an Irish person. It made a lot of sense to me. Um, there's some very touching scenes in it though. I'd give a particular shout out to Hilary Rose playing the mother, the mother of one of the characters is a wonderful scene in the film of her discussing a relationship with her son where, because he, he, he feels he's a disappointment to her, and it's it's she kind of explains her perspective. It's actually a surprisingly touching, well-played scene in a film that's a very riotous comedy. Um, so yeah, it's it's on Netflix if you're looking. It's pretty short, pretty snappy. It uh, doesn't require a huge amount of attention. So I would say uh, well worth a look. Um, you may need subtitles. I don't know. They are speaking English, though, I promise. So um, yeah, Young Offenders. All right, not Irish, not interested. Uh, moving on, <laughs> Eric. That's racist. <laughs> hey, Eric, is there Eric, anything you'd like Eric, to recommend? Oh yes, time to come up with something here. Um, yes, uh, yeah. I actually, my, what I'm putting over this week is um, uh, a show that actually I think is I think it's actually airing right now. Um, like it's actually playing on TV, but um, I don't know if anybody's watched the show American crime on ABC. Um, the first two seasons are on Netflix. If anybody wants to get into it, um, but uh, it's airing its third season premiere tonight on ABC. Um, uh, but you don't have to have seen the first two seasons to get in. It's one of those kind of like hybrid anthology shows where it's just one story every season and like the most of the same cast members play new characters in a new storyline every season. Um, it's, it's, did they do, did they do OJ this season? No, they didn't do OJ this season. Um, I think they're tackling like illegal immigration this season. Um, so very topical, but it's, it's this really great show about, um, no, it's not, not to be, um, I think I'm not to be confused with American crime story. Which is on no, FX. I know. I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but it's this really great show. It's it's very um, it's it's probably not for everybody. It's very dour. It's very grim. Um, it's really heavy and intense. Um, it's not exactly a um, kind of your typical crime series. I guess something like you know NCIS or CSI or whatever. Um, it's it's very much got like um, it's got very big ideas on its mind. Um, in it's, it's a show that's very much designed to sort of infuriate you and get you to hate and love every single character every season. Um, but it's, it's very, not, not only is it, um, topical, politically relevant, thematically potent, but it's also, it's just, it's a really, I, I don't know if entertaining is the right word, but it's, it's gripping. It's, um, it's, it's quite a riveting show. It, it, it's it's quite unlike something I've ever seen on TV before. Um, it's created and written by uh, John Ridley, who's famous for uh, writing 12 years a slave. Um, so I think that might give you something of an idea of its tone, but uh, yeah, American crime, it's starting its third season tonight. Um, and the first two seasons are on Netflix. If anybody wants to check that out. 
Nice. I might follow that recommendation. Uh, all right, guys, we're wrapping it up. This is Optimism Vaccine. Uh, you can find us at optimismvaccine.com uh, or on Twitter at Optimism Vaccine. Uh, you can also follow Sean. I'm not sure why you'd want to, but where could they find you, Sean? Uh if you want really good content, you can follow me on uh, Twitter at M-R-G-L-I-N-I-S. All right. And Jake, where are they going to find you? I'm at Jake Tropila, J-A-K-E-T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Jack? Uh, I'm real Jack Eason. I'm not going to bother spelling that. You don't care. Uh, that's true. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's uh, just like it sounds. Uh, Eric, where are they going to find you? Um, I'm at Eric Bailey, capital E, capital B. All right. Now, if you want to find me, go to hell. Um, <laughs> you know, what would help us is if you were to rate and review this podcast. Uh, it is listed under OpVacCast in the iTunes store. That's going to help us reach a few more eardrums, and that's always a good thing. So uh, if you want to request anything, need to talk to one of us, you can always uh, shoot us an email at optimismvaccine at gmail.com as well. Uh, hope you guys have a good night. Who wants the last word? I'm going to give it to Jake. yabba dabba <laughs> I don't know why, but there it is.